nine quid for a hot dog. You're off your nut, mate. Oh, hi there. My name's T.L. Dawnstar, author, imagineer and author. You've caught me getting into the festive mood at Runcorn's world-famous Christmas market. Yes, nothing says Christmas to me like overpriced wooden tat and poor quality homemade cards. But don't worry if you can't make it to Cheshire's sixth best Christmas market because you're about to get a stocking full of festive spirit right down your ears. What you are about to listen to is the first in a special two-part Carl Dark Cruiser standalone Christmas adventure. Do not be alarmed by this. We will return to the main saga, my saga, in the new year. So sit back, relax, and chow down on some hot, festive nog as you listen to this tale of murder, intrigue, and the supernatural. And from all of us here at Dawnstar Audio, and to a much lesser extent, TNT Audio Publishing, we hope that whatever you're celebrating this December, and whoever you are except Michelle, that you have a great time. Oh, and a particularly happy holidays to my one dedicated listener in Belgium. You know who you are. Get out of the way, I'm doing an audiobook. The Spirits of Peldegrin Hall, a Carl Dark Cruiser adventure, being a reprint of the memoirs of Count Reginald Flenderbatch. Be warned, dear reader, that my humble account of the strange, singular affair that took place at my ancestral pile of Pendergrin Hall of which I have taken up my pen to put down here in hopes of securing the lurid adventure as a matter of historical record, is one which pertains to the supernatural and the supernormal. Men whom possess a womanly disposition or genuine female ladies may wish to keep some reviving concoction within arm's reach as they read, lest my accomplished prose render them stupid with fear. So fantastical, in fact, is the tale, that whence I recounted it to the esteemed denizens of the renowned Pigboy Club, of which I am a proud member, Major Undercourt Steambound, the club's notoriously corrupt bursar, rather rumly insinuated that I was on the smack again. Know that it is not that my words are arranged in such a way as to shock. They are simply my honest recounting of my extraordinary encounter with those two mysterious visitors from another world, and the phantasmic apparitions that blighted Peldegrin upon that stormy Christmas Eve. And while the remarkable episode does contain some scenes which some readers may find upsetting, know too that the bizarre occurrences, of which I shall in short order begin to impart to you, hold within them also that unidentifiable magic that descends so readily upon men's minds as the end of the year draws near, and thoughts turn to the mystical, magic-baby-related rituals of old earth. It is my sincere hope that my prevaricating preamble has both moistened your appetite for the astounding narrative to come, 
as well as significantly contributed to the fascistically enforced word count demanded by my uppity lady publisher, Michelle. It all began on a Christmas Eve, so savaged by a vicious snowstorm that as I made my way back towards Pendergrin Hall from an evening of festive libations and mad banter with the squad, I could scarcely perceive the approaching figure shuffling towards me through the impenetrable blanket of wintry violence. Were it not for the unacceptably close distance at which the man shambled towards me, no doubt the howling winds would have quite drowned out his irregular, drunken footsteps. A dirty, malodorous face emerged from the swirling maelstrom and regarded me with a pair of crazed, animal-like eyes. I identified him immediately as my former head cook Snetherton, whom I'd ordered be removed from his kitchen duties after the dreadful affair pertaining to the oversalting of entrees at the ambassadorial dinner for the delegation from Gastropodia Major that had occurred but three days past. It was quite clear from his unshaven and weather-beaten visage that the man had yet to seek gainful employment elsewhere, and that the monstrous curse that befell so many of the lower classes, namely that of the mind-altering substance known as Crank Weasel, had entirely consumed his existence. Cold nights tonight, eh, sir? Snetherton said, his speech marred by the telltale slurring that confirmed my previous suspicion that he had, in the vulgar parlances of the unwashed, wanked the weasel. Not as cold as your heart, though, to leave a fella out of work on Christmas Eve. <laughs> the wretched man bellowed. You should consider yourself damned lucky I did not do a far sight worse, I ejaculated violently for the drink was upon me, and whatever little sympathy I possessed was snuffed out by my strong desire to be far from the bitter cold and at home, at Peldegrin, in the warm embrace of my wife. I'll be seeing you later, sir. Merry Christmas, Mr. Flanderbatch. And with that, he was gone. It seemed that not a moment had passed. No more time than it would take for a lady to bashfully blink at the sight of a gentleman untrousered or the fleeting measurement of time between a foreigner spying an unattended coin purse and him snatching it up to spend on gin. And yet, the man whom had so recently been standing before me, clear as day, had vanished into the night before my very eyes. There was a queer feeling lingering in the air, and for a moment it threatened to overwhelm my mind with phantasmagoric notions of the uncanny. Prior to the unnatural events at Peldegrin that freezing Christmas Eve, I had always considered myself a man of science, and at the moment of Snetherton's weird disappearance, I applied those rigorous principles and rationality won out. I resigned myself to mark the mysterious vanishing down to the rather large amount of Jaeger bombs me and the lads had slammed earlier in the evening, and, suitably refilled with festive cheer at the memory of the legendary sesh, I happily trounced down the gaslit boulevard towards home. When I laid my hand upon the great oaken door of the great house which I and generations of Flenderbatches before me called home, all thoughts of the bleak, haunted face of Snetherton were far behind me. My good mood was, I admit, aided by the case of imported Euraxian brandy which I had purchased with the full intention of it fulfilling the role as a gift for my wife, but, thanks to a detour through St. Doyle's Park upon my homeward journey, had been snaffled up 
by my insatiable Christmas spirit. In the distance, I heard the great bell of Neo St. Paul's chime 6.30 and was quite astounded by the earliness of the hour. I fumbled in my empty brandy bottle strewn pockets for the keys which would allow me ingress to my ancestral abode, and upon the location of the aforementioned ingress allowing apparatus, I unlocked the vast creaking door and entered Peldegrin proper. The entrance hall was lit by tastefully mounted oil lamps, for I, like all upstanding citizens of Victoriana 9, the world on which our story takes place, ascribed to the philosophy that human civilization, technology, and culture reached its zenith by what was called in the old Earth calendar the late 19th century. Indeed, if one was to chart the progress of human ingenuity on a graph, it would generally be agreed upon by our planet's preeminent intellects that the year 1888 would appear as pointy and proud as the glorious mammary papillia of Her Majesty herself. As such, we Victorianians, known pejoratively by outworlders as Vickies, roundly reject the advanced technology that is ubiquitous across the less sophisticated reaches of the galaxy. Save, of course, for that which allowed the initial colonists to transport themselves to this planet, and the superior firepower which allowed the native alien savages, who were unreasonably reluctant to embrace civilization, to realize that they might have been misguided in their judgment. I had not made it more than a few feet into the room when I was greeted by the vaguely spherical face of my housekeeper on Mrs. Shaughnessy Receptacle. A short but sturdily built woman, old enough for her age to be unidentifiable, she had been in the faithful service of the Flenderblatch clan for as long as anyone could remember. Oh, thank goodness you're home, Count Flenderblatch, she said. I noted that her usual pleasing regional accent was flavored with a rather large dollop of panic. Upon hearing such a vocal irregularity in her famously unflappable countenance, the darker recesses of my imagination immediately set to work upon me, and I began to fear the worst. If you don't think it impertinent of me, I think you'd better come quick, sir. It's your wife, you see. She's, well, if you'll forgive my language, sir, she's in a rape fucking state. In accordance to the solemn vows which I had agreed upon on our wedding day, I rushed up the broad staircase, nearly knocking poor Shaughnessy from her aged feet in my haste to attend to my wife. As I strode towards my wife's wing of Peldegrin, the indefatigable horribleness of my worst imaginings seized my very soul. Then I thought that my wife was probably just a bit pissed off with me because I'd been out all day and most of the evening with the boys getting completely hammered and trying to have it off with other birds. My darling, whatever is the matter? I pleaded with genuine concern as I burst into my wife's bedroom, the incriminatingly empty bottles of Euraxian brandy plummeting from the palms of my hand as I terribly misjudged the grandeur of my gesturing. Oh, oh goodness, Reginald, said my wife's voice bumpily. Haven't you heard the terrible news? I quickly deposited the clanking bottles into a nearby plant pot, lunged over to the bed, and held my wife in the most compassionate embrace that my arms, weak from hours of sustained pint-raising, could muster. Whatever is the matter, my wife? I said to my wife. Oh, it's awful. Oh, truly, truly awful news. She wailed, her usually sweet voice teetering on the edge of hysteria. You must tell me at once, I demanded passionately. It's Netherton, she howled in despair. He's dead. 
Good heavens! I ejaculated on the bed. When? I received a wire from his mother this morning. Oh, she said the poor wretch was found late last night, face down in the river. Oh, goodness, Reginald, it's a frightful business. At that moment, a dreadful cold, more bitter and chilling than the wintry violence which hammered at the windows of my wife's bedroom, came over me. For I had seen the very man not but two pages ago, and while I had been quite certain that he'd been spectacularly off his gourd on the illicit opiate to which I have previously referred, there could be little doubt as to his categorization as that of among the living. I loosened my grip on my wife and slowly rose from the bed. Last night, you say, said I. Indeed, replied my wife, beginning to calm herself with the strategic application of an enormous glass of sherry. Inspector Calhoun said the body could have been there for some days. I ran my hand through my brandy-stained moustache and paced nervously about the place like a man in possession of some great anxiety. Had the name of Calhoun not been invoked, I was likely to disregard my wife's account of the death of Snetherton as some trifling lady's gossip or a yuletide prank at my expense, but the inspector was a gentleman of some worthy standing in society. His word carried the portly weight of Her Majesty's law in every syllable, and thusly the efficacy of his statement was beyond reproach. Outside, the heavy snowfall gave way to calamitous thunder, and great lashings of rain began to assault the windows of Peldegrin Hall, as the interior of my wife's bedroom was intermittently illuminated by blinding flashes of electric blue lightning. The sudden elemental metamorphosis outside, combined with the shocking revelation that had just been imparted to me, produced in the musty air of the ancient house a weird miasma which hung around like the stench of piss. Suddenly, as if designed to disrupt my careful construction of so palpable an atmosphere, there was a great peal at the doorbell, followed swiftly by a confident, insistent knocking. Who on earth could that be at this late hour? My wife asked, unreasonably expecting me to answer despite her being in possession of the precise amount of information that I was. Late? It is not yet seven, my dear, said I. It is more than likely the lamplighter's lad. Come in search of his Christmas shilling. At nearly midnight? God's teeth, woman, I've just told you it is not yet seven. I said agitatedly, reaching for my fob watch with the intent of backing up my reproach by shoving the face of the watch in the face of my wife. However, when I glanced at the dial, the hands were arranged in such a way as to indicate that my wife was indeed correct and that the stroke of midnight lay but a quarter of an hour away. Much scientific study has been made on the time-dilating effects of alcohol, and as you no doubt will have noted, I had hardly been timid in that evening's consumptions. Yet it seemed so fantastical that since my arrival at Peldgren, whence I had heard the bell chime half past six, that nearly four hours had slipped by unnoticed. But what other explanation could there be other than my own intemperance for so extreme an inconsistency? I was keen to put the eerie evening behind me with a bath, with the intention of awakening with a clear head in time for my traditional Christmas breakfast of eggs, vodka, and a Twix. I bade my wife good night with a respectful kiss on the forehead and turned to exit the room. Aren't you going to answer the door, my love? She called after me as I was deposited upon the landing. Well, whatever do you mean, my darling? I said with a chuckle. Mrs. Receptacle shall get it. Mrs. Receptacle? Why, yes, of course. 
Good old Shaughnessy shall deal with our nocturnal caller, whomever they may be. Are you... are you feeling quite alright, my dear husband? Well, <laughs> a little over-merry, perhaps, but uh, yes, of course, why do you ask? It's just that... My wife began. Well, Mrs. Receptacle died in the Great Fire ten years ago this very night. The hammering at the door was matched only by the hammering in my breast as the ghostly chill once again came all over me. I felt my skin turn white as a sheet and became distinctly discombobulated by the entire affair. The most rational explanation, of course, was that the moon's curse that so afflicted the female brain had visited its scarlet menace upon my wife once again. But deep in my own mind, I knew there was some truth to her words, and it was as if a damp condensation that had settled in a thin veil across my memories was beginning to evaporate. The relentless pounding at the door continued unabated, and against my better judgment, I threw on my wife's dressing gown, for at some point during my tipsy constitutional I had somehow ridded myself of my dinner jacket, waistcoat, hat, and trousers, and rushed down the stairs to meet the two men who were to bring so much calamity to my life. As soon as I opened the door, it was quite plain that the two gentlemen, although I used the term particularly loosely, were outworlders. If it had not been immediately apparent from their outlandish attire, one of the unseemly duo wore what I can only describe as a sort of puffy waistcoat, the flanks of which were adorned with a ludicrous amount of pockets, while the other was clad in a long shooting coat of a sickly pinkish hue, then the rough and impertinent manner of their speech left little doubt as to their extraterrestrial origins. It was the bald man in the coat who spoke first. It ain't me. Then our ship's frazzed up your flower bed a wee bit. Wouldn't happen to have a spare coil injection fuel array we could have a go on, would you? He said, although the manner of his vocalizations in addition to an accent so thick as to rival the dense grey fog which semi-permanently swaddled the great metropolis made my understanding of his query no small feat. Had my childhood elocution tutor, Professor Yarrick Expansion, heard the loose vowels and abandoned H's of the vagabond's peculiar voice, no doubt a swift thrashing from the great black sock of hammers, incongruously monikered Mr. Happy, that the brutish woman used to enforce proper pronunciation, would have been in order. Over the man's broad shoulder, a large cigar-shaped craft had burrowed into the award-winning lawn that abutted Peldegrin's grandiose façade. The metallic surface of the vessel was picked out sharply by the increasingly frequent flashes of lightning, and it trailed behind it a great plume of black smoke that danced and spiraled in the howling maelstrom. Forgive me, my fine fellows, I responded cordially, for as I was examining the shipwreck, I treated myself to the miniature bottle of Zarkin slime gin that my wife had evidently secreted in the left pocket of her dressing gown and was now feeling rather chipper. I'm afraid I have little understanding of such matters. Oh, God's damn Vickies, muttered the other man under his breath in a gravelly voice. His polytheistic utterance marked him out as a follower of the so-called metagods, who were worshipped by the outworlders across the myriad systems of the vast galaxy beyond Victoriana 9, of which I have some passing knowledge but very little interest. I allowed the derogatory comment to pass uncommented upon, as I was buzzed from the vintage WKD blue that I'd just polished off, which I'd retrieved from the right pocket of my commandeered garment. As I was wiping the excess sweet blue liquid from my moustache, 
I heard the most terrible clattering echoing down the cavernous interior of my big house. The monstrous din appeared to be emanating from the kitchen. Turning to peer down the large, dimly lit hallway towards the scullery, I saw nothing but the long line of family portraits that hung upon the wainscoted walls. It was long past the hours in which my staff would be slaving away at preparations for the morrow's feasting, and having just learned of the apparent decade-old death of Mrs. Receptacle, I could not account for the unsettling disturbance. It could certainly not be my wife. She had never seen the inside of a kitchen in her bloody life. <laughs> Suddenly, as clear as the deafening cracks of thunder that tore through the night sky in the great sonic schism, I heard Snetherton's sinister warning ringing in my ears. I'll be seeing you like a sir. Fearing that the vengeful cook had returned to reap a deadly retribution upon my head, my heart leapt into my throat and my already drink-weakened knees began to shake violently. I returned my gaze to the men at the door. Despite the series of macabre revelations that had plagued the stormy evening and my own trepidation to allow unsolicited strangers upon the grounds of Peldegrin, I reasoned that the rough fellows might be just the sort of chaps who'd be willing to get him to a bit of fisticuffs should the situation require a physically bestial conclusion. My deduction that they might prove themselves useful should the wicked Snetherton attempt to sneak in and batter me was confirmed by the strange-looking firearms that they wore upon their hips. Oh, where are my manners? I cried nervously, but loud enough so that if an intruder was indeed lurking in the shadows of the kitchen, He'd know that there were a couple of big lads coming his way. You must come in out of this vile storm. Nah, no thanks, buddy, said the gravelly-voiced stranger. We can whip up a camp in the park. Oh, nonsense, I won't hear of it, I exclaimed. It is Providence itself that has sent you to my door this evening. For well, there are strange things afoot, and I find myself in need of two gentlemen such as yourselves. A look of confusion swept across the faces of the strangers, and almost simultaneously... Their brows drew down into a flat, hard line, and their three eyes, for the bald man wore a poorly fitting eye patch, narrowed until I could scarcely believe that they could see anything at all. I can pay very handsomely, said I in an attempt to clear up the confusion that had so evidently overcome them. It was clear that my allusion to hard currency had piqued their interest, and the pair regarded each other with keen eyes. To my own reckoning, I perceived that the glance they exchanged had more than a little affection to it, and if I did not know better, I might have assumed that the two men may have once been lovers, as preposterous a notion as it is. Well then, the bald man proclaimed, and set his rough hand upon my shoulder. Allow me to introduce ourselves, my good man. The name's Starhall, Dank Starhall, and this here's my associate, Captain Carl Darkcruiser. Count Reginald Fenderbatch, pleased to meet you, Mr. Starhall, Captain Darkcruiser. Do come in out of the rain. Starhole and Dark Cruiser shuffled in past me as I closed the door behind them. So, what seems to be the problem? Roaming gangs of pickpocketing orphans? Top-hatted prostitute murderers? Aristocratic vampires? Oh, please say it's vampires. I could see that the other man found his partner's incessant listing amusing, and there was little doubt that Starhole himself found his own japes equally titter-inducing, if not more so. A wide, thin smile spread across his features, and his face contorted into the very portrait of a man who pleasurably luxuriated in the putrid aromas of his own nocturnal emissions. 
I, however, being a close personal friend of Sir George Broadside Thrashing, who had had his exceedingly lucrative career in energy drink marketing cruelly snatched away from him by a gentleman vampire in a top hat who was the ringleader of a particularly light-fingered gang of orphans and indulged in the horrific murder of many of my favourite ladies of the night, found it to be no laughing matter at all. It is no vampire we seek tonight, gentlemen, I began, already feeling the knot in my gut starting to tighten inexorably. But a creature of an even eviler disposition. Look, pal, money or not, I ain't the kind of guy who throws down on the table with half a deck. Either you give it to me straight up, or me and the big guy walk. You dig? Oh, heavens no, I have a groundskeeper for that sort of thing. I think what my friend is trying to say, Starhole interjected, is that we're gonna need a little bit more to go on. My brow was beginning to become moist with sweat and I reached into my pocket to retrieve a handkerchief with which to absorb the nervous perspiration. Upon my hand's entry into the aforementioned pocket, however, I found only a disused confectionery packet and several small glasses of gelatinous vodka. I quaffed the booze-laden jellies as quickly as possible, which did little to alleviate the secretion upon my forehead, but did grant me some small courage. This bolstered my willingness to fully recount the weird series of events that had occurred to me over the course of that fated Christmas Eve to my unusual guests. Not, not Norway, Starhole proclaimed forcefully upon the completion of my tale. Not a chance, I'm not frazzing about with any ghostish sugar. Footnote. It is important to note at this point in my account that I have endeavoured to omit or substitute some of the more colourful entries in the vocabularies of Mr. Dark Cruiser and Starhole, much of the hair-curlingly strong language uttered by the rugged outworlders upon the night in question was of such a salty nature that it made Snetherton's deadly entrees seem bland by comparison. The reasons for this deliberate inaccuracy are twofold. Firstly, the requirement was foisted upon me by my despotic lady publisher Michelle. The second justification is that as a gentleman of some good standing in the community, basic civil decency prohibits me from producing a literary work brimming with fucks, shits, and cunts. Come on, dank. Vampires you're into, but ghosts are a no-go? What gives? I can deal with a vampire. I can shoot a vampire. You can't kill a vampire with a face blaster. That's not how they work. Depends on what kind of vampire. There's a lot of lore out there. I swear to God, Stank, if you start... It appeared that the subject of Nosferatu was a sore point between the friends, and they bickered pettily for some moments before I could bear the pedantic nitpicking no longer. Gentlemen, please! I interrupted. I have reason to believe that Snetherton may already be abroad in the house. There isn't a moment to lose. He's right. It's still early, though. If he's here, he's probably hiding out somewhere, waiting for his chance to strike. I'll make a sweep of the perimeter. I do not mean to tell you your business, Captain Dark Cruiser, but as to your assertion that we are presently at an early hour, well, I must inform you that upon this particular matter, you may well have been misinformed. I got no idea what you just said, pal. Well, to put it plainly, it must very nearly be midnight already. Captain Darkruiser and Starhorn looked at each other in bemused silence before the taller, bolder of the two men spoke. Might be you've got yourself a faulty timepiece there, Reggie, my boy, he said in an unacceptably informal tone. Our chrono indicators are showing 5.45, look! He held up his surprisingly dainty, almost feminine wrist, across which was strapped the most peculiar instrument. I recognized the numerals that hovered above the device 
but failed to identify the method by which they were projected into the thin air surrounding his hand. From his all but unintelligible remark just moments previous, I ascertained that Dank Starhall was presenting me with some evidence that I had once again fallen afoul of whatever malevolent force had made time, or at the very least my perception of it, its plaything. Alright, good luck with the ghost hunting, darling. I'm out of here, Starhole said, as a thunderous roar from the furious night shook the window frames of my Grade 1 listed property. Where the hell do you think you're going, Dank? Captain Darkruiser called after him as the other grasped the door in preparation for his cowardly exodus. When Starhole attempted to open it, however, he found the great oaken door remained firmly in place. Just what the hell is going on here, old man? He ejaculated as he tugged violently. The volatile reaction in the very heart of my stomach that followed was concocted of equal measurements of terror at the unexplained and sudden inescapability of our situation, and incredulous chagrin at the referral to myself as an old man. At the time, I had not yet reached my thirtieth year, and, judging by the deep lines that snaked across the man's head and face like a topographical map of some mountainous reason, the cheeky bastard was a downside older than I. Before the torrent of sick burns I'd planned to blast the bald prick with had the opportunity to leave my mustachioed lips, Captain Dark Cruiser adopted a mocking tone and derided his shipmate. Come on, Danker, quit screwing around. We got a job to do here. Starhole pulled his hand back from the door with a sudden jerk. <gasps> the handle! Oh, oh it's freezing! Uh, oh, they're here! Don't be a scaredy dank. There's no such thing as ghosts. I tend to agree with the captain, although if there were ever a night for the spirits to be abroad in the world of the living, it most certainly would be Christmas Eve. I'm sorry, what? Eve? My reply was cut short, as the flames of the lamps were extinguished by an arctic wind that swept through the hallway and plunged it into total darkness. We three stood in silence for a moment, and there could be heard a low rumbling reverberating through the house like some colossal worm was burrowing through the depths of the old native graveyard upon which Peldegrin had been built. A lightning flash illuminated the corridor for a split second before we were once again thrown into impenetrable blackness. For what seemed like an eternity, all was quiet in the hall, with nary a murmur or creak to upset the eerie stillness of the night. Only the pervasive rumble and the tick-tocking of the long case clock disturbed the pregnant hush. If I had been in any doubt as to the supernatural nature of the evening's events, as indeed I had been just moments ago, such doubts had been expunged, and in the recess left in the depths of my soul by their departure, a terrible, indefatigable terror had taken up residence and all rationality fled from my being like a great flock of birds at the sound of the huntsman's shotgun. To put it plainly, I was completely shitting myself. The room began to spin around me, and in my stricken state, I reached out through the gloom to grasp the shoulder of Starhole to steady myself against the wave of dizziness that threatened to cause a fainting fit. But the man had vanished, leaving only a single thong sandal which, by the application of some light-emitting material, shone dimly in the gloom of the hall, and all my fingertips perceived before I fell was the freezing cold handle of the door.
I awoke what appeared to me to be several hours later in the cozy warmth of the drawing room. Surmising that I must have embarrassingly succumbed to my fear-induced disequilibrium, I sat up in the high-backed armchair on which I must have been placed following my feminine turn. In the pleasant glow of the roaring fire, I saw Captain Darkruter. The rogue was sat upon the Chesterfield, with his legs thrown wide apart in the manner of a man who possessed that special kind of machismo that so dominated any space which he desired. Politeness prevents a gentleman such as myself from fully embracing that animalistic aspect of masculinity, and I confess I became somewhat jealous of the spacefarer's laissez-faire attitude towards his lower limb deployment. He was slumped down upon the settee and flushed red, like a man whom had recently been engaged in vigorous physical activity. He was smoking a strange-smelling cigarette which filled the room with purple vapour, lending it the oriental charms of an off-world spice bazaar. There was a sheen of sweat across the young man's brow, which indicated to me that he must have fought like a demon against whatever beastly apparition had abducted Mr. Starhole. Oh, Carl, look! Thank goodness my husband is awake! cried my wife, who was also there. She too had a flush about her, and it became painfully clear what had occurred during my unconsciousness. My wife, of somewhere between ten and fifteen years, had committed the most outrageous obscenity. Upon hearing the audible impact betwixt her husband and the parquet flooring of the hall, she must have rushed down the stairs immediately to tend to me, and, upon discovering the captain, attempted to defend my honour against the unknown forces with which he was battling. The thought of my wife putting herself in so dangerous a situation while I lay helplessly inept was cripplingly emasculating. The poor dear had been so concerned for my safety that she was still recovering from the exertion, and evidently hadn't even the time to change out of her nightgown which she still wore. I sat up upon the armchair, and my wife swiftly handed me a wonderfully revitalizing glass of Garland Miner's finest salt beer. I quaffed the fizzy grey liquid and turned my attention to the captain. Oh, oh, please forgive my temporary involuntary hibernation, Captain. Well, I trust my wife has been taking care of you in my absence. She sure has, he replied, taking another drawer on his exotic cigarette. Quite a tumble you took back there. You feeling okay? Certainly, said I. Pray, how long was I asleep? Mm, about ten starmans. I'm, I'm sorry, ten what? Goddamn Vickies. It cannot be so short a time interjected my wife. "'Twas but quarter to six when we found you, and the clock is showing very nearly ten. I had learned from my previous quick reproach of my wife, and glanced at the grandfather clock, which I had inherited from my uncle, that stood next to the fireplace. The position of the hands did indeed confirm that my wife had been correct in her assessment, and I resigned myself to the conclusion that another ghostly time slip had occurred. "'And Mr. Starhole, what became of him?' I asked Darkruiser. No idea. I've searched the whole house, no sign of him. Except this. He held up the sandal, which I had caught a fleeting glimpse of in the hall. No sign of this Snetherton guy, either. I cannot speak as to the whereabouts of your friend, Carl, but poor Snetherton has passed on, and you must pay no heed to my husband's ramblings. He is often very drunk, you see, and has a writer's gift for embellishment. Now I've sent a wire calling upon Inspector Calhoun, whom I'd hoped might be able to come and put all this silliness to bed. But the storm has made the roads to Peldegrin quite treacherous, and I fear he may not be with us until the day after next. What with it being Christmas and all. Who the hell is this Christmas I keep hearing about? 
Dark Cruiser asked. Well, every schoolboy is taught of the ungodly ways of the outworlder. It is as fundamental and indelible a fact as that of the orbits of the moons. Yet, to be confronted by the savage, heathen nature of it in one's own drawing-room is a shocking thing indeed. The astonishing ignorance of his question flabbergasted me to a such a perplexing level that I found myself in need of a hefty measure of the fortified Calaxian wine that was kept under the armchair in case of emergency. Why, my dear boy! I cried once the medium-dry beverage had successfully completed its journey down my gullet, and I felt its mischievous machinations begin to work upon my system. Do you not know what day tomorrow is? Um, Tuesday? Good heavens! Quite his Christmas Day, of course! The space captain looked as baffled as if I'd told him I'd recently developed two heads, and he contorted his cold, steely eyes into a gormless squint. I turned to my wife, looking for a comrade to share in my disbelief at the curious foreign ways of our visitor, but her face was as white as a bucket of teat-fresh farm milk. Her deep green eyes, for which I had fallen all those indeterminate number of years ago, stared past me, through me, to the empty space behind my chair. Mother? She stammered. Of all the terrors I had endured that evening, none so filled me with the unfathomable depths of dread that her utterance birthed within my spirit. At the moment in question, my wife's mother had been dead for ten years, fourteen hours, and just about fifteen seconds. You may very well think it macabre of me to be so exacting in the recollection of an intimate familial demise. Decency prohibits me from thoroughly expounding upon the reasoning as to why the precise moment of my wife's mother's death should remain in my mind these ten years, fourteen hours, and just about fifteen seconds later. But suffice to say that should a man choose to arrange his cufflink drawer in a particular way, that he damn well might expect it to be kept like that and not improved upon by the parent of a spouse. Against my better judgment, I turned to look behind me. The spectre that I beheld was indeed that of my deceased mother-in-law. She hovered a few feet above the lush carpeting, and although her mouth was moving, no surprise there, no sound emanated from her lips. I returned my gaze to my wife, whose eyes were wide with horror and disbelief. Out of deference to her emotional reaction, I suppressed the overwhelming urge to scream, I told you so, and instead looked at Captain Darkruiser. The man was fingering the outlandish pistol, holstered in the handsome darkish blue gun belt. As much as I silently wished to see him discharge the weapon into the ghastly physiognomy of the incorporeal intruder, I reasoned that it would do no good, and may very well inflame whatever evil spirit had sent her to torment me. I made a gesture with my hand to dissuade him from the hostile maneuver. The roaring fire, roaring happily in the fireplace, was blown out by a chill wind that blew through the room, and our spectral visitor, whose translucent green form cascaded into thin ribbons of dissipating embers, was blown away with it. It... it could not be, Mother... Let me guess, Mama Dearest bought the farm a while back, huh? Oh, ten years ago this very Christmas Eve, Captain. In the great fire of Beldegrin Hall. There's that word again. Does somebody want to tell me what the hell's a Christ mouse is? My goodness. You truly do not know, do you, Carl? I've flown all over this damn scum-infested galaxy of ours, and I've seen more alien worlds than you Vickies could even dream of. 
but ain't got a frozen clue what this Christmas thing is. And your shipmate, Mr. Starhawk, he seemed rather in the dark about it as well. He asked much the same thing as your good self, just before... At that moment, a bright new light shone in the gloom of the newly darkened drawing room, though neither Captain Dark Cruiser or my wife had the eyes to observe its shimmering luminescence. For this light of which I speak, which blazed with the hot brilliance of the very suns themselves, did so in my own mind. My Jove! I shouted and leapt from my chair with the vigorous jerk of a galvanized cadaver. That's it! My wife, startled by my sudden ejaculation, shot a curious look towards me. Whatever is it, my dear? Why, it is the very spirit of the season that is set against us this night! The pair regarded me with matching looks of disbelief and exasperation. Consider that Mr. Starhole vanished just moments prior to proclaiming his ignorance of the Yuletide, and the sudden appearance of my wife's mother was preceded by Captain Darkcruiser uttering a similar statement. It is quite clear that these apparitions, whatever they may be, are inexorably connected to our outworld visitors. Perhaps the spirits are messengers, sent here to change the ways of our rough, rugged, uncivilized, animalistic guest. Yes, quite so. Yes, yes, I am quite convinced that if we are to placate these festive revenants, then we must take it upon ourselves to educate the good captain here as to the true meaning of Christmas. Dark Cruiser Saga Chronicles is a production of Dawnstar Audio, written and read by T.L. Dawnstar. The voice of Carl Dark Cruiser and everyone else was T.L. Dawnstar. Get in touch via electronic mail using the address tldawnstar at gmail.com or via Twitter at tl_darkcruiser. Rate, review, and tell your friends and enemies. <laughs>